This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 61, part A. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hello and welcome to the NegotiateX podcast. I am your co-host and co-founder, Nolan Martin. And with me today is Aaron Denizian and Aaron would you like to introduce our guest for today's episode? I will. I'm really excited by the discussion we're going to have today. It's, I think, a little different uh, from other conversations we have uh, with people in the negotiation, influence, persuasion field. And I think this is one of the most critical conversations we can be having uh, because it impacts not just us, but future generations. And, and so I'm really excited by where we're going to go. And I, I hope that listeners will stay with us through both of these episodes that we're going to release um, to get the full understanding of what Mr. Ian Rowe is going to share with us, uh, both from his book, but more importantly, from the work that he's doing. So folks, Ian Rowe is with us today. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on education and upward mobility, family formation and adoption. Mr. Rowe is the co-founder and CEO of Vertex Partnership Academies, a new network of character-based international baccalaureate public charter high schools opening in the Bronx in 2022, and is the chairman of the board for Spence Chapin, a nonprofit adoption services organization that provides adoption and adoption support services. Mr. Rowe is a senior visiting fellow at the Woodson Center and a writer for the 1776 Unites campaign. He is a trustee at the Thomas B. Fordman Institute and a senior advisor for the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, Fair for All, Parents Defending Education, and the National Summer School Initiative, NSSI. Mr. Rowe is widely published and quoted in the popular press, including the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, C-SPAN, the New York Post, the Washington Examiner, and the Education Week, and Education Next. In addition to serving 10 years as CEO of Public Prep, a nonprofit network of public charter schools based in the South Bronx and Lower East Side of Manhattan. He was deputy director of post-secondary success at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mr. Rowe won two public service Emmys while serving as the senior vice president of strategic partnerships and public affairs at MTV. He was the director of the strategy and performance measurement at USA Freedom Corps office in the White House and co-founder and president of Third Millennium Media. Mr. Rowe was also a senior staff member for Teach for America in its early days. After receiving a high school diploma in electrical engineering from Brooklyn Technical High School, he earned a Bachelor of Science degree in computer science engineering from Cornell University's College of Engineering. He earned an MBA from Harvard Business School, where he was the first black editor-in-chief of the Harvest, the Harvard Business School newspaper. Serving as an elected school board member, he resides in Pelham, New York, with his wife and two children, Ian, thank you very much for being with us today. Um, well, Aaron and Nolan, thank you for that introduction. I'm exhausted just listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> if you hadn't done so much, you know, it'd be shorter. And I know we can shorten it. And I think it's helpful for folks to understand where it is you're coming from and all the amazing things you've you've done. Um, we're going to jump right into it, Ian. 
I have really enjoyed reading your book. Uh, when we were getting started, um, Nolan said, Hey, how did you hear about Ian? I said, well, I, a friend of mine, a colleague posted, uh, something about meeting you, uh, and talking to you, hearing you speak, uh, on LinkedIn and mentions your book. And so that's, that was the lead. And I have to say, um, of things that I've, I've read recently, I, I highly recommend it. Ian, the name of your book is Agency, The Four-Point Plan for All Children to Overcome the Victim Narrative and Discover Their Pathway to Power. Could you define for us and our listeners what you mean by agency and, and how that connects to this concept of power? Thank you for having me on the podcast. And, and before I give you my, I guess, formal de definition of agency, I talk about how my experience has informed why I think this concept is so important. As you said in the introduction, I currently uh, run Vertex Partnership Academies, which is a new network of international baccalaureate high schools. And for the decade prior, I ran a network of all girls and all boys public charter schools in the Bronx, uh, in the South Bronx in particular. And even before then, you know, I've worked with kids in virtually every capacity, rich kids, poor kids, black kids, white kids, Asian kids, kids from homeless shelters, kids in uh, broken homes. And um, what's been interesting is that when I've seen kids who are raised in certain challenging situations, some have succumbed to those conditions. Like they have recreated the disadvantage within their own lives. And yet there are others who grew up, you know, maybe in troubled single parent homes, deep poverty, and yet somehow they were able to make different sets of decisions that have allowed them to embark on a life of prosperity. And the animating question of my life has been, what makes the difference, right? What is it that allow, what is it that allows young people to understand that they don't have to be a victim of their own circumstance. And so in the kids that I've seen as they entered into young adulthood who were able to visualize a different sense of their future, my observation is that they had a sense of agency, that they were not victim, that they were architects of their own life, that they could craft their destiny. But it didn't just come out of nowhere. So I observed four major factors that were common amongst those kids that seemed to arrive uh, at a different place in their lives. The first is in just family. So regardless if they came from a troubled single parent household or a dysfunctional, even married two parent household or domestic violence, somehow the family that they're from didn't restrict the health of the family that they formed. Right? And we can talk a little bit more about things like the success sequence, and we'll talk about that. But that, that was one of the first fundamental things that I've observed, that the cycle of disadvantage partially ended because the family you formed was very different than the family that you came from. The second major observation that I saw in kids, again, in my own experience, is that they typically had a personal faith commitment. Didn't matter if they were Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, it was just that they lived by a moral code. And not only that they lived by a moral code, they were part of a community, a community of people that they were in kind of rituals of support. So each week, whether you went to temple or church, 
you were part of a community that loved you and reinforced these expectations of the moral code. So that's just a, was a key observation, this idea of a personal faith commitment. The third big observation that I've seen in young people who transcended their current condition was that they benefited some way from educational freedom or school choice. So they had the opportunity to go to a school that was much more right-sized for them. So that could mean a charter school, a private school, a religious school, but somehow, again, even regardless of circumstance, their family, their parents, somehow they were able to go to a great school. And then the very last um, sort of common element that I saw is that these kids had a, what I call an entrepreneurial spirit. They were problem solvers in their own lives. And so this is really important because if you have a strong family that you form, if you have a strong personal faith commitment, if you've benefited from educational freedom or school choice, that usually creates the foundation for you to be more entrepreneurial, to be more of an informed risk taker in your own life. So those four elements, family, religion, education, entrepreneurship, I started to see that that could be a framework that I call free, family, religion, education, entrepreneurship, as a pathway. So if more young people knew about that arc of decision-making, then they could cultivate more agency in their own lives. The quote that I wrote down from your book that I, that I loved was, just as velocity is not just speed, but rather speed and direction, agency is more than free will. It is free will guided by a moral sense of, of right and wrong. Did I get that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. And because we all have free will, right? We, we, we all have the ability to exercise decisions with our own lives. But as we've seen, there are lots of people who have free will who do some terrible things, right? So the question is, how do you wield your decision-making power over your own life? And that's why the free framework, I think, is so important because agency, just you said, is not just free will. It's free will guided by moral discernment. So where does your ability to become morally discerning come from? And that's where I argue this framework of family, religion, education, entrepreneurship can help you get there. So for example, with, within family, there's some data that I often talk about called the success sequence. And that is a series of decisions that do you finish just your high school degree, then get a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And if you have children, marriage first, if you follow that series of decisions, 97% of the people who follow that series of decisions avoid poverty. And the vast majority enter the middle class or beyond. If you don't know that that framework exists and you live in a community where the predominant family structure is single parenthood and you know, absent fathers, then you would never know that there's a way to make decisions around that first big F, that first big anchor of agency. And so that's why I really try to have this empowering message of what young people can do if informed with the right kind of information. Ian, kind of want to take a step back here for our listeners and kind of build on what you had already kind of talked about here. But could you help describe what you see as the need for agency for every child in this country, regardless of socioeconomic background and status? 
So part of the reason I run schools, especially in low-income communities, is that I want students to know that they can do hard things. You know, that they are going to face obstacles in life, that there will be impediments, but that they have the tools of self-betterment, of self-renewal within them, and that they have the ability to overcome. And to your question, unfortunately, I've sensed two emerging meta-narratives in our country that are really telling young people all the things that they cannot do, right? That based on certain characteristics of their personhood, their race, their gender, they're inherently a victim or marginalized. And I see these two narratives, I call these two narratives, one is blame the system and the other is blame the victim. In the blame the system narrative, that's a view of America as an inherently oppressive nation. That if you're of a certain skin color, um, if you're black, there's a white supremacist on every corner. Or capitalism itself is evil. Or if you're a woman, you're inherently uh, marginalized and behind the eight ball. And that these forces in our country are so overwhelming, so overpowering, so discriminatory, so powerful that you are powerless to overcome them. And obviously that kind of narrative is very debilitating and robs young people in particular of a sense of agency. But on the other side, I sense this narrative of I call blame the victim in that narrative, America is not the problem. I mean, America is great. America is the land of opportunity. In the blame the victim narrative, you're the problem. You haven't pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. You haven't taken advantage of all these opportunities that this country provides for you. Now, of course, the problem with that narrative is that it ignores what happens when a seven-year-old is growing up in a community where they may not have access to resources or a strong family. I mean, in the district in which I just opened high schools, of the kids that started ninth grade in the year 2015, four years later, only 7% graduated from high school ready for college. That means 93% started high school and either dropped out or they actually did earn their high school diploma, but still could not do math nor reading without remediation if they were to go to college, right? So only 7%. So if you're, if you're a 12-year-old, like you can't solve that problem, right? So there are some structural barriers. And so at the same time, we call for personal responsibility. We also can't ignore some of the structural barriers that do exist. So those narratives of blame the victim and blame the system, to me, add up to a singular lie that tells young people that you can't do hard things that you can't overcome these large forces, or it's your fault if you haven't done so. And that's why I felt agency could be an empowering framework that is an alternative to those narratives. What I loved about in your book are the, the pictures that you put, put in there. Um, Nolan and I both being army guys, we like pictures over words, Ian. Um, <laughs> so even, even though, even though it's, it's beautifully written. And so whether, whether we reference and just tell folks, Hey, go read the book, obviously. And, but the images between kind of the blame, the system, blame the victim 
and then this free approach, I, I, to me, it just really brought it kind of ma made it made it very obvious what it was you were conveying. Yeah, well, you know, there there are a couple of images I, I have in the book. Well, one I have in family, which I thought was important just to to get a sense of how I experienced the kind of stability and support that allowed me to have a sense of agency in my own life. But in the book, I have a, a chart that many people may have seen. It, it actually depicts equity and equality. And essentially, it depicts equality. You know, all the, several people are trying to uh, watch a baseball game and there's a fence and they all have the same size box uh, as supports. And one is able to see over the, the fence, but another isn't. But then in equity, you notice that in order for everyone to have um, the same outcome, they literally have taken a box away from one of the individuals and doubled up someone else. It's a powerfully visual depiction which shows from each according to their ability to each according to their need. It's a very Marxian socialist concept and it's a false view and it, and it says equity is a better outcome and it's, it's not. It's a forced top-down zero-sum game which robs everyone of agency. That was the image, by the way. So my, you, 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 you corrected me and thank you for that. Language is so important. So you're talking about the difference between equality and equity. Um, and as we continue to frame the problem, I don't know if, do we need more there? The definitions around discrimination, uh, privilege, these are words I feel like get thrown around a lot these days. Oh yeah. And do they help or hinder the conversation that, that you're trying to lead us to have? I think what you're asking is very important because definition of terms is so important. Like equity is not equality. It's interesting. When I went to Harvard Business School, equity had a very different meaning than it is today. When I went to Harvard Business School, equity was something everyone was trying to get. Like you could get equity in this, you know, this company called Google um, or, or uh, you know, Amazon um, because equity meant your opportunity to have ownership in an enterprise of unlimited potential. Equity today means something very different. Equity today means the absence of disparities by certain identity groups, right? So the way to achieve equity means that you've got to eliminate those disparities between groups. You've got to force equal outcomes by group, right? So if let's say 23% of black students are reading at grade level and 42% of white students are reading at grade level, then in order to achieve equity, both of those groups have to equal the same, which by the way, I'm using real numbers. So even if all black students suddenly were to equal white students, you'd have mediocrity because we've never had a situation in our country where even a majority of white students are reading at grade level. So closing disparities by group is a, is a false goal. It's actually a, it's, it's a, it's a goal. All it would achieve is universal mediocrity. And so equity is this search to close group disparities and the lazy explanation that any disparity must be caused due to discrimination within that group. So if there's a disparity of outcomes of, of blacks versus whites, then that must be racism. Equality is something completely different. Equality of opportunity is for individuals, where equity is all about absence of disparities by identity group, 
equality of opportunity is focused on individual. And as a result, equality of opportunity accepts the reality that you're not going to be equal at the end of the day in terms of results, right? What we want to do on why I run schools is that kids are operating on a level playing field, equal opportunity. Do I have access to a great school? Do I have access to great teachers? Do I have access to schools with high expectations? That's the level playing field. Not every kid is going to get 97 on their math test, right? Not every kid is going to be the superstar soccer player. So you accept the differences that occur in one's life, but that's not equity. Equality of opportunity for individuals is what our country was founded on. It's why I think individual agency is so important, but equality is not equity. And I think it's really important that we all really define these terms so that we're consistent about what we're talking about. Also continue kind of setting up the problem and, and we're going to get to some of the work you're doing in just a moment. Um, you, you, you meant, you, can you say a little bit more about what you're seeing in terms of the creating the conditions for the challenges we face, family fragmentation, shifting societal uh, norms. Um, how are these things kind of leading in? And then, and I don't want to throw too much at you one time, but you, but you quote Yuri, is it Yuri Braun? Yuri Bronfenbrenner, yes. His work, and, and I just wonder about the process, what I love, the process by which an infant transforms into an effective member of society what are the conditions we're seeing and why is this, again, why this, the, ur the urgency of this work? Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is that I had been running public charter schools starting in 2010. And I, I had always thought the most important thing we need to do is just focus on running great schools. Obviously family is important, but I didn't really understand the central role it plays in the human development until I was six years into running uh, these public charter schools. We had just moved our headquarters from Manhattan to, to the South Bronx, 149th Street and 3rd Avenue, uh, because we had a huge demand uh, in the South Bronx. All of our future schools we were going to open there. So we said, let's move our headquarters. And one day I decided to take my team on a walking tour. I mean, you know, there was a needle exchange on the corner uh, where we would um, open up our new offices in the Bronx. Well, we said, like, this is where our students are. And so we should have our headquarters here. We decided to go on a walking tour. And as we were walking, we saw in the distance a 27-foot baby blue Winnebago truck with all these adults who were excited, who were standing with almost like the ice cream truck when it comes around with kids. But this, these were grown-ups. And as we got closer, there was graffiti lettering on the side of the truck. The graffiti lettering said, who's your daddy? Well, it turned out that the who's your daddy truck was very well known in this area of the Bronx, and it's a mobile DNA testing center where low-income folks are spending somewhere between $350 and $500 to answer questions like, could you be my sister? Are you my father? Really profound questions about family structure. And as I really started to dive in and do more research, I discovered that the non-marital birth rate in this community was about 85%. And then I really started looking into numbers of women 24 and under. And that's when it really struck me throughout the country 
women 24 and under who have children, about 71% of those babies are born outside of marriage. Within the white community, it's 61%. Within the black community, it's 91%. And you have to say that there are always exceptions that some of these kids are going to grow up with a single mom who was able to overcome, you know, every leap and bound to be successful for their kid. But the vast majority, the vast majority are on a pathway for another cycle of disadvantage for poverty, domestic violence. And so if you're running schools and you're concerned about these issues of upward mobility, you cannot ignore the phenomena of what has happened in terms of family fragmentation. And it was at that moment, 2016, that I decided I couldn't just speak about running great schools. I also had to help the next generation, the rising generation, think differently about their decisions related to family formation. You know, the non-marital birth rate of, of, of all babies in, in the United States now for more than a decade is more than 40% of all kids across race. And I discovered Yuri Bronfenbrenner because he created something called the bioecological model of human development. And it's really common sense. But basically what he was able to identify was that if you put a baby at the center and imagine a series of concentric circles around that baby, radiating out by which circle has the greatest influence, not surprisingly, the circle, the tightest circle, the one that has the greatest proximity is your family, your mom, your dad, your siblings. And then if you radiate out a little bit more, you might see your school, you radiate a little bit more, you might see your church, radiate out a little bit more, you might see your neighborhood, you radiate out a little bit more, you might see government, public policy, media, popular culture. And the point that Bronfenbrenner made was that if we really want to strengthen the development of children, you've got to strengthen those most proximate forces. Uh, what he called the microsystem. And so if the microsystem, if the core is not strong, then what happens is all these other circles who have values and ideas that don't necessarily conform to your own, those are the ones that start interacting with your children. So that's why social media, for example, um, uh, the internet can be so dangerous because suddenly your kids are now seeing images or hearing stories or learning ideas about things that you, your immediate family may not want you to, and yet they now are being exposed. So the combination of Bronfenbrenner's uh, bioecological theory plus this realization of the explosion, particularly in non-marital births, just made it clear to me that I had to step out more to acknowledge what a lot of us know, but don't really talk about, which is the breakdown of the family is one of the most fundamental um, causes of the issues that we see so many kids confronting as adults. Thanks for taking that work on. It probably would have been easier just to focus on great schools. You know what? If you're a school leader and you're being honest, you're being honest about what the challenges that young people face and you don't confront the family question, you're being disingenuous. Basically, we need to run great schools, but if we're not talking to young people about 
what their future decisions are, particularly as it relates to family, they will be on a perpetual cycle of disadvantage. Hey everyone, Nolan here. I have to jump in and end today's podcast for part A of the show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Negotiate X Podcast if you haven't already. And also join us next week for part B of this awesome interview. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.